You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously. It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. Ready? Let me know when you're ready for the clap. Tried to beat you. It was good. You did beat me. (laughs) (laughs) That's Bill. Welcome once again to 32 Thoughts, the podcast interview edition presented as always by GMC and the new Sierra AT4X. If you're a newer hockey fan and maybe you never had a chance to watch Bill Guerin play, you really miss something. Garen could score. Here's Garen stepping down around Weber. Flipped it into the net. What a move by Bill Garen to produce the first goal of this game in a four-on-four situation. He could check. He could fight. Players box and we've got to go. It's Dion Phaneuf and Bill Garen. The 20-year-old Dion Phaneuf drops him with Big Bill Garen. Was a great leader. Rochard looks at the net. Skill and toughness on display in every game he played. And if that style kind of reminds you of the team he's constructed in Minnesota, well, I don't really think that's much of a coincidence. They have one of the most exciting skilled players in the league in Kirill Kaprizov. They have young dynamite in Matthew Boldy, a perennial Selkie Trophy candidate in Joel Erickson Act to go along with toughness in the form of Ryan Reeves and Jacob Middleton, to say nothing of the grit and effectiveness of players like Marcus Foligno and Matt Dumba to go along with their captain, Jared Spurgeon. And don't even get me started on Jonas Brodeen, although, as you'll hear in the interview, I kind of pull out my Brodeen fan club card. And as general manager, Garen presides over all of it. You know, Garen's an interesting guy. He's personable and friendly, but he won't be taken advantage of. He's deliberate and decisive, but he'll also listen to just about everybody around him. We sat down with Garen last week at a downtown Toronto hotel for a pretty wide-ranging interview, then a little bit of pool afterwards. But before we get going, we'd like to thank two people, Aaron Sickman and Jackson Rebel from the Minnesota Wild Communication staff for making this interview possible. Thank you very much, gentlemen. So here he is, former Stanley Cup champion, now calling the shots in many. We think you'll really enjoy this. Bill Guerin on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Enjoy. I kind of feel like, Bill, I want to either hand you my wallet or ask you, have you ever had a nickname similar to the one you have now, which is the banker around the NHL? How many people are calling you saying, listen, can you hold this? Can you hold that? Can you hold a couple bucks for me now? Because I think a lot of people are surprised that and we looked around teams around trade deadline who could hold some money. I don't know that you're Minnesota Wild or the top of any list. No, I don't think so. First of all, don't give me your wallet. You don't want me to handle your wallet. Um <laughs> We did get a few more calls after that. And yeah, it's just funny how it worked out. You know, we got these two calls, you know, late in the day mm-hmm. and um, it just seemed like really good value. And we have, you know, even the the spot that we're in with, with our dead cap space, we have a considerable amount of, of cap space to utilize. And both these moves that, that we did, um, they don't take us out of doing anything that we want to do. Right. as well. So it was kind of a kind of a win-win. I give a lot of credit to my assistant GM Chris O'Hearn. Mm-hmm. He he did all the legwork on it and 
Um, he's a much smarter guy than I am. So piecing it together and dealing with the other AGMs or GMs. That, that was actually my question. Do you just say to him, Chris, come back to me when you have the answers and yeah. tell me yes or no. <laughs> like, don't bother me with the numbers. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, he, he got, he got the call from the other AGMs mm -hmm. and just says, you know, would you consider this? Do you want to, do you want to do this? And we kind of go over it and, you know, call Craig Leopold, our owner, cause it's, it's his money. Yeah. And, um, you know, we just talk about it quickly and, but we try to make our decisions quick. And I think that's why we're able to kind of capitalize on it. One of the things that I certainly I'm curious about, I think a lot of people might be as well. Is there an agreed upon amount that a fourth round draft pick is worth that a fifth round draft pick is worth, or is it all different sort of team to team? Like when someone says, Hey, can you hold this amount of money? It's like agreed upon, like, okay, for this compensation, we get a fourth or we get a fifth or we get a whatever. Is that sort of agreed upon generally amongst managers? I mean, in the past, it's been a lot more. Like, I, I really felt like we got good value for the, the money that we spent. Mm -hmm. You always look to the past and see like, okay, in, in this year, a fourth rounder went for X. Right. So that's what it should be or a fifth rounder, sixth rounder, et cetera. But we just feel like we got really good deals. So we couldn't really say no. Well, it's interesting you say that because I was listening to your answer there and I remember talking to a GM once about his relationship with his owner. And he said to me that my owner at the beginning of the year gives me a budget and I'm allowed to do whatever I need to do in that budget. But I also know that if I'm going to make a big move, I have to warn him first. Like I feel my job is no surprises. He says, I'm allowed to do small things that won't bother him at all. But I think if there's anything that's big, I warn him. Other than that, I don't bother him with trivial things. So I'm always interested in that. How a GM yeah. feels about the owner, that kind of thing. Since day one, I told Craig, uh, you'll never be surprised. You're never going to get an alert on your phone or mm -hmm. whatever. And I almost said pick up the paper. <laughs> You're never going to get an alert on your phone saying the Minnesota Wild you know, have made this move. You're going to know well before that. You know what? Small things that don't make a difference. No, we'll we'll just do it. Yeah. But like things like this, yeah, he he's got to know, and we've got to get his okay. Like, it's so important to have support from the top, mm -hmm. and and we do. Another GM said to me, the number one thing he thinks about when he takes a job is, can I win with that owner? And this guy has been in multiple places, some good, some bad. He says it doesn't matter what your roster is. It doesn't matter what your organizational philosophy is. If you don't have an owner you think you can win with, you're doomed. How did you establish that with Craig Leopold? I think Craig and I just hit it off, you know, personality-wise. And I think I've gained his trust. And uh, over the, the short time that I've been in Minnesota, we, we as a group have been extremely responsible and thoughtful with his money. And I think because of that, he trusts us. And you know what? I can make the call. I feel comfortable enough making the calls to him and we can discuss the tougher things. And, you know, we, we get along very well. And I think that that definitely helps. But yeah, whoever the, the other GM was, I, I totally agree, agree because you need that support from the top. In order to build a winning franchise, it takes money. It takes a lot of money. Maybe what's the most expensive thing that people don't know about? Stick budgets. Yeah. God, stick budgets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know what? You know what creeps up, honestly, or just payrolls. Mm -hmm. You know what? If you have a big scouting staff, a small scouting staff, it, it, it creeps up in there. Yeah. Equipment costs are, are crazy. I mean, skates and sticks are just, they're so expensive now. Travel. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all charter and we all Never stay hungry. In, we all stay in, you know, <laughs> hotels like this. The, the travel is is incredible, but uh, I mean, it all adds up. I mean, you're a great guy, and I'm sure when you were a player, you weren't shy about handing a kid a stick. Hey, here you go, young man. <laughs> hey, young lady, no problem. Now as a manager, when you see your players just handing out sticks whenever they see fit and getting the applause as being the generous one here, what goes through your mind? I love it. You know why? Because that kid is a future fan. You know, he's a future season ticket holder. He's a future jersey buyer or whatever. Yeah. And you know what? So it's an I, investment. Yeah, I think so. And I think, hey, look, I don't want guys throwing sticks out left <laughs> and right. Of course, we have a budget. But you know what? 
I think that also says something about the players in our game too, mm-hmm. that they're willing to, you know, take the time and connect with a young fan. And I, I, I think it's important. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're dollars, right? But there's also something more to that. You just made a kid's life like or day or week or whatever. Mm-hmm. You just had a connection to them. What's the, um, and I'm sure there's a few, but are there a couple of things that come to mind right away that you think of when, when you were a player, you believed X, mm. but now that you're a manager, you believe Y? Oh, man. <laughs> Look at that smile that he had on his face as you asked <laughs> there's that question. So, there's so much. You know, when you're a player, you worry about this little area right here, just you, and you get yourself ready for the game. Of course, you worry about your team and your teammates and stuff, but you have to prepare yourself. You show up to the game, everything's there for you. You step on the ice, everything just happens, and fans are in the building. And But the amount of work and the amount of people it takes to put on an NHL game is crazy. I mean, ushers, you know, vendors, trainers, the equipment guys, uh, everything that goes on to just put on one game mm-hmm. is actually incredible. And there's just so much. You know what, like – you see the people riding around on the Zamboni. You don't just pick some guy out of the, you know, oh, yeah. the, the, and stick him on the Zamboni. No, there's like a program for that. And there's, you know, the little kids sitting on the bench and, you know, people organize that. And there's just so much that goes into it. And you know what, too, honestly, where do the players come from? Players just don't show up. Like, in the, yep. you know what, there's scouts, there's development guys, there's this, there's that. It's just a whole huge process to get everything going just for that game. Jeff, that was a great question. And, you know, one of the things is that people say is that you can tell the GMs who are former players who are really serious about it and really aren't. Like, you played for a long time. You clearly loved playing. When you transitioned, like, how hard was the transition? And people said to me, like, they go into this dinky rink in Czech Republic, and Steve Eisen would be there. And he'd be like, holy smokes, like, this guy is for real. Like, what was that like for you, the transition and trying to stay in the competition when you were never going to have it on the ice again. Well, that's just it. You stay in the competition, you know, as professional athletes or, or, you know, even other businesses or walks of life when you're competitive. For me, it was impossible to not have something like that in my life. Like I couldn't just stop and just Mm kind of smell the roses. No, I need to, I need to compete and can't play forever, unfortunately. So this was, this is the way you do that. And yeah, you know what, you, you go to the Czech Republic, you know, you go to Sweden, Finland, all these places and, you know, all over Canada, the U S to get one player or, you know, you're battling for a college free agent or a free agent junior kid or a European free, like, or the draft or whatever, you're competing against everybody to get those players. And that kind of, that drives you too. But just the whole, the whole thing gave me, you know, it fills that void, you know, there was a little gap between playing and management where I, I was a mess. Like, you know, you don't have any place for your, for your energy, you know, just a little workout doesn't do it. You need it mentally more than anything else. How did you get past that? I started working right away. You know, I took a couple months off, you know, Ray, I went, when I got let go in Philadelphia, when I tried out there, I always say my first phone call was to my wife. We both knew I was going to retire. And then my second call was to Ray Shiro. And I said, Ray, I, I need to come in and talk to you uh, soon about the second stage of my life. And I went in to talk to him and he said, look, it, we'll do something, but you need to take time off. So I, I only took like three months off, maybe four. I mean, it was good in some ways, you know, but it was horrible in other ways. And, and when I started working part time for no pay, just expenses, it was awesome. And I just, I got bit by the bug and this is what I wanted to do. Do you still catch yourself going game by game or do you allow yourself to take the bird's eye view of, cause you can get so wrapped up in the emotional roller coaster as a player. You know, this a lot better than me and Elliot. Yeah. Was it a tough transition going from the, I'm in this fight, you know, every single swing, every single kick, every single, everything to, you know what? We're going to take a more 360 view, maybe a bird's eye view and look at, you know, the season in segments as opposed to just period by period by period as a player. 
Well, when I first started out, I, I was never around. I mean, I think until Jim Rutherford came in, I was never around the big team. I was on the road all the time. I was mm -hmm. dealing with all of our prospects in Pittsburgh. So, yep. you know, traveling to colleges and junior and Europe and things like that and doing some scouting. And so I was never around the big team to be involved, like, you know, period by period. It, that didn't come until a little later in my my career. And then I was the assistant GM. So I was still traveling more than I was with the big team. Right. You know, but now as a general manager, yeah, you can get caught up in it. Like if we're in a big game, like some nights I get emotional and some nights I'm like, you know, pretty cool. I wish I could be cool all the time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, there have been nights where, yeah, I, I get upset, but you know, you have to, you have to take a step back and really realize where you, you are like, and where your team actually is. But I just always think we can win. What's the angriest you've ever been after a game and have you ever confronted a player or stopped yourself from confronting a player after a game? I've talked to players after games, but I always, I always try to think back in my career. And I played for some great general managers, some really good people. And like even Lou, who's, mm -hmm. you know, his reputation is, is he's tough as they come and this and that. But, you know, was I ever confronted by him or Glenn Sather after a game and been like, no. So I, I try to think back about the way I was treated by some of these great general managers. Mm -hmm. I try to utilize that, like my own experiences. Was I ever treated like that? Did my general managers ever do that? And if the answer is yes, maybe I'll do it. If the answer is no, then there's a good chance I, I won't. I have a good relationship with our players, I feel. I like to talk to them. I like to know what's going on, how they're feeling. If I can help them in any way, I will. You know, I've had multiple talks with guys like Marcus Foligno and Ryan Hartman and Jordan Greenway and guys like that. Guys who, you know, it's tough for me to, like a Matt Zuccarello, like I could never play like that, right? Mm. But I could play like those other three guys. So I feel like I can connect with them and kind of give them my advice on what like a power forward or a gritty forward should play like or what they can do better to have more success. So I talk to the guys a lot. Yeah. And I like to joke around with them too. I'm not, you know, I haven't changed that way. Mm. As far as managers go, whose style do you like? Like as a player, we always think of, I want to play like Bill Guerin. I want to play like so-and-so. But as a manager, like who do you look at and go, I like the way this guy does things. I like the way this guy conducts himself. You know, obviously Lou, you know, because Lou is, there, there's no BS. You know, I, I love his mm -hmm. theory of we don't have a lot of rules, but the rules we have, we follow. Mm -hmm. And it is cut and dry. And I, I really respect that. And I've, you know, and I've had, I had my own personal battle with Lou. Yeah, contract. But, but I learned so much from that. And I, I lean on that now. You know, I learned a lot from Jim Rutherford and Ray Shiro, Rob Blake, and I did the Kevin Fiala deal. I really like the way Blake, he, he's just such a like good, even-keeled guy. It was kind of more like right to the point, you know, but I could say that about, about most of the guys. I mean, I, I really like dealing with everybody. And you know what? We all have our own style, too. Sure. I think it's really important to to understand that we are all in different situations. We all have different owners, different markets, mm -hmm. different teams. Uh, we're all in different stages. So it's you have to respect where everybody else is coming from. What was the first time? Because you there was a time where you were trying to work out a deal with Parise and the Islanders. So as you mentioned, you were traded from New Jersey to Edmonton while you were in a contract dispute with yeah. Lou Lamorello. What was it like to call him up and try to make a trade with him? Oh, it was great. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I mean, he doesn't leave any stone unturned, right? And he puts a lot of thought into it. And I love talking to him because I've known him for so long and we've you know, been through a lot together and we won a Stanley Cup together and all those things. I have the greatest respect for him. So I always feel like I'm learning something, you know, even when we were trying to make a trade. And, you know, I remember we were going through certain things. He's like, you got a pen and paper. I'm like, oh. No shit. I better get one. Like, <laughs> um, but that that's always fun. One of the things that I'm always curious about is how much do general managers know about what's going on with other general managers? And I'll, I'll couch it this way. How often are you surprised at a trade? Or do you generally 
have a sense of what's going to happen out there? No, I mean, no, there, there's trades that we're surprised by all the time. Like you don't know everything that's going on. And I, I think that's good because I think when you go down the road with another team, you know, and I know you think that you can just kind of take a turn and start shopping that player to everybody else. You can't do that. Like you're not informed on every deal that's going to happen in the league. Mm -hmm. you, you're, you're surprised by most of them. I've heard GM say like, if a trade goes down, I don't know about it. I consider that a failure on myself. Do you ever think like that or anything like no, that? No. no, because I might not be in the market for anything or that type of player. I don't know. I, I just don't call around. I don't want to waste anybody's time either. You know, so if I don't have interest in anybody on that team, I don't necessarily just call just to kind of kick tires and this and that. It's just, that's not really my style. Okay. I want to talk about some fun stuff about Bill Guerin. So I asked some people, like, give me a good younger Bill Guerin story because <laughs> one of the tough things, I, I re-listened to the Spinning Chicklets interview you did with those guys and it was so good and you told so many stories. I was like, I've got to find something a little bit different. So one of the stories I heard about you, we can't name the type of car because our sponsor is different, but I heard <laughs> that when you were like a young teammate with the Fitzgeralds, that you used to borrow yeah, Tom's yeah. car a lot without him knowing. Oh, yeah. And later, when you were traded to a team Tom was on, you presented him with a miniature model of that car. Yeah. Is this story true? Yes. Explain it. Yes. So... I played junior hockey in Massachusetts with Scott Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. Tommy's younger brother. So Tommy was playing for the Springfield Indians. Mm -hmm. And his brother Scott moved out to Western Mass. And so when Fitzy would go on the road with the Indians, me and Scotty would go and grab his sports car and tool around for a couple days in it. <laughs> And I remember there, there. I think he had one CD. It was, it was like Eddie Money's Greatest Hits. <laughs> great CD. You know, it was great Hold CD. On. He you was know, big in the eighties. So awesome. you're like, we're cruising around. <laughs> if I could walk on water, and it was, it was like go time. So I got traded to Pittsburgh, and uh, we were just laughing about kind of how everything's come full circle. And yeah. Whatever. I forget where I was, but I see this model. It was like one of those snap tight models or whatever. Of the exact car, like exact model, exact color, and everything. And I bought wow. it for him, and I brought it into practice the next day. I said, remember this? <laughs> <laughs> so when he found out that you guys were borrowing his car more than he realized, what did he say to you guys? I don't know what he dealt with his brother, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to 32 Thoughts, the podcast, ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously. It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. Of all the teammates you've ever had, who's the one guy that could crack you up like no one else? Oh, Dougie Waite. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's between him and and Walt Kachuk, Keith. Mm -hmm. Those guys are we've were, been very tight for a long time. But Dougie and I played on so many teams together. We're very close. Our families are close, and we have the very the exact same sense of humor. Over the break, we just spent three days together, and it was nonstop. 
Yeah, he's just he's just a funny guy. He's a, he's a great friend. We all we do is laugh when we're together. Mm-hmm. We just all we do is make fun of each other, and that's just it. He's 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 the best. The story I remember just some of your stuff about your career. I love the story about the recruitment by Dallas. Like, did yeah. you did you know that Tom Hicks was going to knock on your door at midnight? No, that was Terry O'Reilly. That was from the uh, Rangers. Oh, I thought it was because someone said to me like like. Tom Hicks sent the plane at midnight or something? No, he came in that day. Okay. But at midnight, my wife and I were staying at a hotel in downtown Boston, and uh, the Rangers sent Terry O'Reilly, because he was the assistant coach there at the time. Yeah. He was like my hero. Like, I love Terry O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. So they sent him over with a jersey for me, jerseys for the kids, a Tiffany Apple with the Rangers thing on it for my wife, and this DVD with all these stars on it and stuff, and and then the next morning, Tom Hicks flew in on his plane with Doug Armstrong and Dave Tippett, Guy Carboneau, and we met with them for a while. And it was, yeah, it was, it was nuts. What it were the offers like? Because you signed for five really times good. nine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, were they all close? Like, did you ever turn your wife in the middle of that and say, "Holy smokes! Like, I can't believe what's going on here." Yeah, they they were all really good. I had four really good offers. You know, one from New York, one from Dallas. One from Toronto and one from Detroit. Kenny Holland and I laugh about it all the time. <laughs> and uh, But there was always like something just off in the other ones. And Dallas just seemed like such a good fit. You know, I really liked the team. The city seemed great. And it ended up being great. And Mr. Hicks was a fantastic owner. And, you know, like I said, like it takes a lot to win. He put a ton of money into that. And, mm-hmm. you know, he signed a bunch of guys. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was there was a very cool experience. What was the Toronto pitch like? Yeah, that's the thing that really, stood out to me. I didn't realize was that they were that uh, big. It's pretty much the same deal, and it was. Uh, Daryl Sittler didn't knock on your door or anything like that. No, or? no, no. It wasn't anything like that. It was it was straight straight about the money, and <laughs> um, but you know what? I, I think knowing like Mike Madonna and a few other guys on the team, mm-hmm. you know Darian Hatcher, and just seeing what type of team that they had down there, that was. That kind of swayed me down there. Do you still keep in touch with Crosby? Yes, I do. How often like do you text him or call him or anything like that? Every so often. I know he's playing now and yeah. you know, it's it's but anytime something funny comes up and or something from the past or or whatever, and uh yeah, we'll we'll always text and we still have a good relationship. I texted him uh I was up in uh up in Halifax for the World Junior. Mm-hmm. And I just texted him something like, man, the beer is really terrible up here. Nobody, <laughs> nobody likes to have a good time, <laughs> which is the complete opposite. It was absolutely amazing up there. and But I know Sid's real proud of, of, of being from up there. Of course. Like, what was it like being a teammate with him and then being in the front office while he was there? Like, how did that – was that dynamic any different at all or anything? No, uh, because, again, I wasn't the general manager. Right. So I could keep uh, – you know, I kept my distance, you know, first of all. And then second of all, if if I ever changed, those guys would call me out on it so fast. And I never wanted to do that. That's why, like, you know, even now, like, look, I am who I am. You know what? I, I like to I like to poke fun at guys and I like to have fun. I like to goof around a little bit. But like, so if I ever changed and if I tried to be like, you know, Joe serious and you know don't look at me after a loss or this or that guys would call me on it my my family would call me on it does has anyone ever no because I learned that pretty early like somebody one time gave me some advice they're like you got to get a little more serious and this and that and you know what I tried and you know it just doesn't work for me it's my it's my personality you know and I'm not going to change who I am like just because I have a, a serious job like it's Trust me, just like when I played, I can flip the switch. We'll get it done. But I'm also going to I'm gonna be who I am. We talk a lot about Crosby. We talk about the Pittsburgh Penguins. Who is that? <laughs> 87, Cole Harbor, mm. pretty good little player. Doesn't, ring, doesn't ring a bell. Terrible tasting beer. Mount Rushmore, yeah, doesn't, doesn't have good good beer in, uh, in Nova Scotia. Oh, the kid with the sweaty hat. <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah with, and the, the jock from Pee Wee that he's been wearing for his yeah. entire life. I don't know that we know a lot about Malkin. I've never had the feeling that and I he really likes it that know. Way. And that's what I'm thinking. Like, I don't know that we know him. And he's like the Hall of Fame awaits. Like right down the street from where we're doing. Yeah. This is the Hockey Hall of Fame. And he's going there. He's one going day. there. What do you think people should know about him? 
how funny he is. He is absolutely hysterical. He's got a great sense of humor. He's really sharp too. He's just a really funny guy. Like I sat next to him in the dressing room. You know, he he'd just throw a little shot here. You know, every once in a while, and yeah. he'd like look at my skates, and he'd be he'd like, "Oh, now I know why you're so slow." <laughs> Something like that. Like in, and he just you know he always called me get in, get in, and do this and do that and get out of the way. And but he he's a really funny guy, and yeah. he cares. He cares. One last thing on Crosby just hit it in my mind. I remember um, it's a great story about Colby Armstrong and the first time he saw Sid working out. And he went over to Sid and said something along the lines of, is there like another league higher than the NHL that we don't know about that you're trying to get to? Was it like the first time you saw Sid working out? Like, what was he like in the gym? In the gym? I mean, in the gym, he was, I was never in there, so I don't know. (laughs) But no, the, the big thing for me was practice. Yep. And how serious he took practice. You know, by that time in my career, I was 38. My body wasn't what it used to be. I could manage my way through practices. And mm-hmm. and he would come over. He's like, come on. Like, we got to go. And I'm looking at him like, oh, okay. So I had to start picking it up and stay up to speed with him in practice and push harder just to just to keep up with him. And Chris Kunitz, too. We, he was great for me at that point in time in my career. But his, his drive was unbelievable in practice. To me, that's why he should always be considered – in the Hart Trophy race yeah. for how he sets like this work rate for his team that you have to at least try to approach. There is a standard in Pittsburgh that is so high that I would think most teams can't match, and it's because of him. If you don't come into camp tip-top shape, focused and ready to go, you're not going to succeed there because mm-hmm. of him. Oh, I want to ask you, joining New Jersey, you walk in – Stevens, Danico, Niedermeyer. Like these were all hard, determined guys. And you're like, you take yourself seriously. Nobody plays as long as you did, but you like to have fun. Yeah. Were you ever worried it wasn't going to mix there? Your personality. Oh, no, no, no. We had a, oh, trust me, we had a bunch of guys. But it's funny, the, my first call up, the first day I got called up to play in the NHL, the first guy I met was Tommy Abilene. And he helped me with my stuff and walked into South Mountain Arena, our, our old practice rink. And I met Scotty right away. And he was like getting ready for practice and he didn't have a shirt on. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I got, he's on my team, right? <laughs> like, and uh, yeah, and Scotty was very serious. Yeah. Neater was, Neater was a young guy. Like he was just 19 years old or whatever. Serious, you mm-hmm. know? Kenny Danico was a riot. Chris Terreri was great. Randy McKay was great. Johnny McClain. Randy McKay. We had some. We had some really. We had some really fun guys. Like it was. I mean, we had we had a great time there. So, Jacques Lemaire. Jacques was serious. Yes. <laughs> Lou was Very serious. serious. Yes. But Very we, serious. But we had a great team. We it was, you know, we used to go to this little bar in Verona, New Jersey, called the Verona Inn, and we would go there as a team. My wife was actually a bartender there. Wednesday nights, but we would go there as a team and it was players, wives, girlfriends, fathers, brothers, whoever was in town. And we just go and we're just, it was like a family. It really was. And you just took care of each other and simple guys. But man, we, we, yeah, we had a great time. We could just trap it up like crazy. <laughs> I assume that's where you met your wife there, right? At that bar? I or? did. The owner of the bar was a really good friend of mine, actually. Mm-hmm. And he has since moved to Minnesota. He was friends with both of us, and he introduced us. Mm-hmm. And, it, yeah, it's just it's actually a crazy story because – Let's hear it. So we left New Jersey, and his name's Marty Robinson, and Marty's a great guy. And Marty's 10 years older than me. So we we left. We got traded to Edmonton, and our you know carousel of teams starts. And – Marty sells his bar and starts in a different business with uh, um, kind of Homeland Security, airport security. And he's been to, you know, uh, Fort Myers. He just did four years in Tokyo. And he calls us a couple of years ago and he says, hey, uh, uh, what are the schools like in Minnesota? And we're like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, I'm getting transferred and I have my choice between Salt Lake City and Minneapolis. He goes, we're coming to Minneapolis. So this guy that 
we've been friends with all these years and now who is you know married and has four kids i don't know how he does it at 62 but <laughs> um but him and his family live 10 minutes down the road from us in minnesota and we're we're still thick as thieves it's it's awesome that's fantastic yeah it's it's a really cool story it's kind of great having him, him and his family in, in our life again and it's it's uh it's awesome yeah let me ask you about your team and yeah. i've mentioned this in a couple of places I think that your build, like the style of team that you're building with Minnesota is the envy of a lot of other teams in the NHL. Like when I hear what the Philadelphia Flyers want to do with their team, I think every time it might be in John Tortorella's voice, but that's Bill Guerin's team that he's talking about. Like when you think about what you want this team to be, like I look at skill, I see toughness, like there's a whole, like you can play a lot of different ways. Like when you look at what team you want, I know you're not going to say you're, you're there yet because you haven't won the Stanley Cup, but is this your team? This is what, is this what you've wanted? This style of team? First of all, thank you. Yeah, it is. I just feel like to be successful, you, you have to be able to play different types of games, different environments. You need a certain level of grit and toughness, and that comes in different ways. Ryan Reeves is a very tough guy in one way, or a lot of different ways, mm -hmm. but he's a tough guy. Kirill Kaprizov is also a very tough guy. He doesn't back away from anything. He wins all his battles. He goes to the traffic. Mm -hmm. Both tough guys, both very different, and you have to have everybody in between that doing the same thing. Same thing with Zuki. Zuki's you know, a, a smaller player, but he's got jam. He's got, he, he's brave. You need that. And I want our team to be able to play their best game in the most hostile environment. Hmm. So if you're playing another tough team and the crowd's crazy and all that stuff, I want our team to be so mentally tough too that we can play our best game in that environment. Mm-hmm. That's great. The stakes always get higher, right? And as you move up the ladder in, in the playoffs and things like that, the intensity gets better. And so you, you have to play your best game then. Who was a guy you played with we might not think of who was always phenomenal in those situations? You know who was great in those games? Jason Smith. Hmm. Jason Smith. He played he hard, man. Unbelievable. Yeah. Like you talk about like a warrior. You shake his hand now. His fingers are all over the place. Like it's like I don't, <laughs> I don't even know if he could put a glove on. Like he blocking shots, yep. uh, doing all the dirty stuff to play, just at, at such a high level in tough games. He was a great teammate. He's a really good friend. But man, was he tough! Like just uh, he stepped up all the time. I'm going to ask you what might seem, and I can already hear Elliot's eyeballs roll <laughs> because I go on about this guy and this one skill countless times and Elliot knows where I'm going here. I don't know that there's a better or faster backward skater in the league oh than God. Jonas Brodeen. Uh -huh. Have you seen, or do you know a better backward skater than Jonas Brodeen? No. I mean, it's no, he doesn't have the offensive side right. of the game at an elite level. His defensive game is as good as any Norris trophy candidate or better. He can defend as well or better than the so-called top guys. Mm -hmm. He just doesn't produce. And you know what? For us, that's okay. Just watch his feet. Like how many times he's crossing over, how many, like his escape moves. He's a one-man breakout. He is an elite defender. You know, when you go against the, the McDavid's and McKinnon's and you have him out there against them because of that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I don't want to say it's a lost art because players do it. But when you look at the nature of defensemen that are coming up from youth hockey. They're coming up from minor hockey. Everybody wants to jump in and chip in and offense and look at my edges and check out my fancy C cuts and all of it, right? Oh, yeah. The ability to defend. I don't want to say, is it be, or I don't want to ask, is it becoming a lost art? But are kids putting enough emphasis on being able to defend? Because it seems every year at the draft, we look at defensemen and it's, the same things over and over. It's great. Everyone wants to be Kel McCarr now. I get it. But do enough young players still want to defend? No. No. 
because they don't put high enough value on it. Mm. You know, they see it, you know, and hey, I think McCarr is probably the number two player in the league. Like, I, I think that much of him. After Kaprizov. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's so special that, you know, a guy like that, you just, he, he's going to do what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. But most of the young players now, like, you know, even probably at the youth level it starts, but, like, they see the the fancy stuff, you know, the trick shots and this and that. And if you're a defenseman, the one thing you have to do in this league is defend. If you can't defend, you better be Kale McCarr or Carlson or Doughty mm. or somebody that drives offense, like, at an incredible rate because there's no room in this game for – a specialty player like you just can't do it you a coach won't trust you he won't want to put you on the ice and you just yeah you have to be able to defend and that goes for forwards mm-hmm. too you if you're not good defensively you better be racking up some serious points if you don't have good wall play you better be doing something really special on the other end of it and it took me a long time to figure that out too but um <laughs> Look, coaches, they don't like giving up goals. They don't like being in the defensive zone. So you have to be able to defend. You have to be able to get out of your own end. You have to do some of those things that that aren't sexy. Trade deadline on the horizon after that GM meetings. What's a front burner issue for Bill Guerin at the GM meetings? I was just talking to somebody about this, and I, I don't, I think the game's in a pretty good spot, but I think I'd like to look at the, the playoff format, you know, maybe going back to the one through eight. But again, that's so on the surface because, mm-hmm. you know, I can say that because, you know, you look at some of the matchups that have happened in the first round and you're losing at least one really good team way too early. But I know it's just not that simple. Kind of like I was talking about how it takes so much to put a game together. Mm-hmm. Like it takes so much to just make a change like that. It's not just, Hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to do it. I mean, the league has to do so many different things in, in order for that to happen. And it, it's really tough to argue with the success our league has had, you know, in the last while. So I do think our game's in a pretty good spot, but that would be one for me. I, there's always like little, little things here and there with different rules. Like right now I'm seeing like more interference than we've seen in years past. Like, mm-hmm. can there be a crackdown on that? Like if a guy dumps a puck in the defenseman isn't supposed to be able to really hold them up, but I see it all the time now, you know, is that one little thing that we can get better on kind of like we got better on the slashing and the cross checks and things mm-hmm. like that. Are picks a big issue? Yes. Seven of Toronto, a- Tampa, excellent, they yes. They are. Excellent point. We got called for it two nights ago, and then I, I've seen it five times since. And it's a tough call. Like it's, but it is, it is happening, mm-hmm. you know, especially when it's, uh, especially like four on four and things like that when there's more movement. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do think that. Do you expect that to come up at the GMs? Yeah, maybe well now. <laughs> Expanded playoffs, yes or no? I could be sold on maybe like a play-in. I have to maybe think a little bit deeper about it. I'm usually more inclined to stay with tradition. But when I first came in the league, there were 21 teams and 16 made the playoffs. Mm -hmm. Now there's 32 and 16 make the playoffs. Again, it's not that easy. It's not easy just saying, hey, we're going to add a bunch of teams Mm -hmm. and let's go. There's there's a whole bunch of things that – that I don't even know about, but I do know that there's a bunch of things that has to go into it mm-hmm. in order for it to change. Yeah, but that's one of the things that would probably come up. I have two last ones. Number one, I want to ask you about Greenway. You know, uh, you know, he's he had a situation where he overslept and he was late for a game. I, I really like watching the guy play. How do you handle that kind of a situation with a young player? Well, you have to have accountability. And we held... Jordan accountable. He's not a bad kid. He's he's actually a great kid. I mm-hmm. love being around him. He's he's got a good heart. We've all made mistakes, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a malicious thing. He didn't break the law or anything like that. But he he was late. 
and he didn't play that night and that was it but you know what you don't it's not like we're beating the guy up either we're not it's not like we won't talk to him the next day or this and that or anything like that it's just just move on Mm -hmm. you have to hold people accountable Mm -hmm. we all have to be held accountable at some point in time right and it's just if you don't, it really gets to be a runaway train. And the other thing, you're in uncharted territory next year. You're going into a situation where you're going to have a cap issue like nobody's ever had before. How do you prepare for that? And I guess the other only question I have for you, Bill, is there: would you change your decision at all? Like, so you wouldn't be in this kind of situation? Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I would not change my decision at all. Mm-hmm. I think it's it was best for everyone. And... I think a lot of people, most people, focus on the two players that we bought out. And it wasn't just that. It was like we didn't bring back Miko Koivu. And Miko's a great guy. Like he's he's a friend and he's, you know, he's an all-time franchise player for Minnesota. We didn't bring him back. You know, we got rid of guys like Dubnik and Eric Stahl and Jason Zucker, guys who did some really great things in Minnesota. But we had to change. And you know what, in order to change, sometimes you have to make really tough decisions and we're going to deal with the consequences of that. And I'd do it again. I think we're fine. And I know these cats, we're, we're in one right now. Mm-hmm. We're minus 12 million in, in the cap. And you have a lot of space. You've managed and we beautifully. Have a lot of space. Yeah. Like, so we don't use it as, a, as an excuse whatsoever. I'm not going to say it's not going to be difficult, but we just have to plan for it. And you know, target certain players and certain, uh, you know, pay levels that, that we feel that can help us because we won't use it as an excuse. Hmm. The expectations will stay the same. Let me pick up on that because I was, I was talking to someone yesterday um, from another team and I said, hey, Elliot and I are sitting down with Bill Guerin. What do you think of him as a general manager? And this person said to me, I like Bill Guerin because he behaves like a businessman. That if something's not working, he'll just eat it move on, don't worry about the criticism, do what's right. He said the game would be a lot better off if people behaved more like businessmen and said, you know what, this doesn't work, so you know what, take the loss, move on, and keep going. How do you react to that? Boy, if my father could have heard that, <laughs> yeah, he'd be, he would have been shocked. I take that as a huge compliment, and um, you know, it makes me proud to hear that. I I try to be very honest with myself and everybody around. And if something doesn't work out, it's okay. Like it hasn't worked out for a lot of people. And, but you know, and something I learned from Jim too, Jim Rutherford, like just move, don't waste any time. And I I feel like sometimes like we can get caught up in, in winning a trade or winning this or winning that. When if I waste time and I don't deal with the problem right away, it's only going to hurt our team. And, you know, it, it goes back to the even like the Cam Talbot trade. I wasn't going to trade Cam at all. But we had this situation that came up over draft weekend. And I thought about it for, you know, a good part of the day. And I'm like, you know what? This isn't going to work. So I traded him. And, you know, Cam's a really good guy. And there was nothing really wrong. But I just had a feeling that it wasn't going to work. And, I just moved on it, and it's it's worked out really well for us. That was awesome. Great. Thanks, Thanks. very much, Bill. That was great. Thanks. Yeah, I hope you liked it. Yeah, this is fun. This is awesome. You guys obviously do a great job, and I appreciate you having me on. And there he is. Wasn't that great? Bill Guerin, general manager of the Minnesota Wild. He spent a lot of time with us last week, and we thank him for it. Uh, a couple of notes here. The entire video uh, of this interview will be available on Thursday at our Sportsnet YouTube channel, uh, shot in a room called, appropriately enough, The Green Room. Really cool spot. We think you'll like it. Also, the next podcast won't come out on Friday morning as you're used to. We've got trade deadline after all. So the next podcast, it'll probably be a big one as well. It'll come out Saturday morning in a full recap of the trade deadline, which by then will have come and gone. Taking us out is a husband and wife duo from Southern California who are able to blend their unique vocals with minimal instrumentation. Smooth Hound Smith's folk rock style brings so many layers of sound that it feels like they're backed by a full band. Cheating ways will now
From their sweet Tennessee honey record, here's Smooth Hound Smith with 30 Days on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously. It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences... People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host.